Um, <coughs> so that we'll have time for questions afterwards, uh, it is half past seven. Would you like to stand for an opening prayer? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, enkindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created. We say together, let us pray. O God, who has taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Holy Spirit we may always be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolations through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now the format of our meeting this evening, I will, would like to, with Dr. Mara's permission, to read a short quotation which will help you to understand the Church's teaching on the subject of origins. And then Dr. Mara will give a talk which will last about an hour and 15 minutes. During a short interval, you might like to look at the tapes and literature at the back of the hall, and then we'll take our places again and Dr. Mara will be willing to answer questions. And then at the very end of the evening, we have to pay for the hire of the hall, we'll have a collection. Now, in 1950, Pope Pius XII produced an encyclical letter, False Trends in Modern Teaching. And he said these simple words, The teaching of the Church leaves the doctrine of evolution an open question, as long as it confines its speculations to the development from other living matter already in existence of the human body. That souls are immediately created by God is a view which the Catholic faith imposes upon us. In the present state of scientific and theological opinion, this question may be legitimately canvassed by experts and by discussion between those who are experts in both subjects. At the same time, the reasons for and against either view must be weighed and adjudged with all seriousness, fairness and restraint. And there must be a readiness on all sides to accept the judgment of the Church as being entrusted by Christ with the task of interpreting the scriptures aright and the duty of safeguarding the doctrines of the faith. And the Pope added, with regret, there are some who take advantage of this freedom of debate, debate by treating the subject as if the whole matter were closed, as if the discoveries hitherto made and the arguments based upon them were sufficiently certain, certain to prove beyond doubt the development of the human body from other living matter already in existence. They forget, too, there are certain references to the subject in the sources of divine revelation, which call for the greatest caution and prudence in discussing it. Now, I see that the question being an open question is our starting point. We do not accept one or the other without reasonable arguments. And it is in this area that many Catholics have made lots of mistakes. I think Dr. Mara's talk will show you that. Dr. Mara. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, Father. Dear fathers in Christ and dear friends in Christ, my topic is called the distraction of evolution. And when you hear the way I pronounce the word, I'm afraid that's going to distract you. I know you say evolution, and I 
Just hope you'll bear with my colonial pronunciation. I therefore am not going to get into the scientific questions about the, the proofs or the alleged proofs of the hypothesis of evolution, pro or kind, uh, con. I'm going to give more a philosophical analysis of what is at stake. And my chief point at the end is going to be this. I really have two points. To show you the great distraction from real truth, this whole evolution question has been. That's the chief point here. But my second point will be to show that the chief alleged proof that scientists allege for evolution rests on a huge begging of the question, rests on their own atheistic assumption. It's only because they are certain God does not exist, cannot exist, that they will accept any absurdity, lest they be forced to, to accept the existence of God. And therefore, I'm going to insist that there is a, a set of priorities, epistemological priorities, such that we first, philosophically, religiously, through faith and reason, uh, moot the question of the existence of God. We first ascertain whether God exists, and then, if we want, we discuss this, this question of scientific hypothesis. There's a tremendous confusion on this question, I say uniquely on this question, between valid verification of serious scientific hypotheses and amateur philosophy based on begging the question. I think we all know that this whole thing has been important, this evolution question, for only about 130 years. We've always had philosophical theories of evolution back to the pre-Socratics. They would always advance unprovable and unproved hypotheses about the possible origin of the forms of the world, and some of them would venture that it, uh, it, it came about by increments through chance, Plato himself was already uh, discussing this question of whether chance, which he called necessity, could account for the, the different forms and the higher forms of things. But it was only with Darwin that people finally believed we had a valid scientific mechanism, namely natural selection, which would make uh, evolution scientifically respectable. And I don't have to tell you that it, it dominates the entire world, that no matter what, what course one teaches at a university, of course biology, but even uh, English literature, no matter what sociology, uh, ethics, no matter what course you're in, th this word, word and concept of evolution dominates it to the great prejudice of philosophical and religious truth. And of course you know that in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, we have been laid covers, thanks to the works of Théa de Chardin, however. Uh, we seem, or certain theologians in the Roman Catholic Church, seem to have embraced it with enthusiasm. And if one hesitates to accept, just on the scientific level, evolution as being scientifically verified, uh, one seems to be in embarrassment that... Uh, uh, well, you belong to the Flat Earth Society, and you ought really to get your act together. You ought to accept it wholeheartedly, and then try to work it into your physics, uh, to your metaphysics. Uh, I'd like to 
give a little anecdote about this. I was educated at the Jesuit University in New York, Fordham University, a pretty good place. I mean, I got my doctorate there. And in those days, we had Father Weigel, Gustav Weigel, who was a paritist at the Vatican II Council and somewhat of a controversial theologian. Uh, he was teaching us a course in epistemology, and he brought in the head of the anthropology department, uh, Father Ewing, a Jesuit, a rather prestigious man also, and Father Ewing walked into class carrying a skull, which already intimidated us philosophy students because already we were in the presence of science. And his first word was, gentlemen, evolution is a proved fact. You better not make fools of yourself by trying to defend creationism. It's a proved fact, so you people in metaphysics had better rewrite your rules or your books on, on uh, necessary being and so on to take account the scientifically proved fact of evolution. Now that was in 1951 and for the next 18 years I shut up about evolution. I was thoroughly intimidated. It seemed to me that if ever I should question this sublime wisdom of the scientist, I should be accused rightly of belonging to the Flat Earth Society, and I certainly did not want to prejudice religious truth by seeming to be such an idiot and such an uninformed idiot in scientific truth. And then I, I, I joined, therefore, the ranks of people who think it's the only valid position, Catholics at least, namely being a theistic evolutionist, and it seemed to have a good division of labor, Faith and reason tell us uh, uh, that there is a God. I have never doubted that. I've believed it, and philosophically I think I, I have understood it better. But then science tells us how God de facto works, namely through evolution. And in these days, don't forget this is just when Teilhard's works were being uh, promulgated. It was my Fordham University which has the honor of sponsoring a Théâtre de Chardin symposium just about a few years after I graduated, and we have a powerful 50,000-watt transmitter. So this conference was broadcast all over the metropolitan area. They flew in all these experts from Belgium and France and Europe in general, and the whole thing was one hymn of praise to this sublime Jesuit thinker who, who, who gave us a new harmony between faith and science, that we all agree there's a God, we all agree that there are scientific discoveries which, which completely prove as a fact this theory of transformism, evolution, and that we saw the, the spirit in those days, what, what halcyon days they were just 20 years ago, the spirit was that there's a new age of harmony dawning for science and religion and philosophy. And it, it went like this, and it created an inferiority complex in theologians and philosophers, which we have never lost. In the, I would say that present-day theology generally within the church suffers under this inferiority complex. No matter what they say about Genesis or, or, or St. John, they look nervously to see what the latest paper is on evolution, and, and they're so afraid lest 
the latest experiment at Harvard repudiates some, some point that they dared to suggest in biblical exegesis or perhaps in metaphysics. I might note this, it's my firm conviction that this entire problem is one or 99% epistemological, perhaps 1% based on positive science, ultimately speaking, and that this whole, the great questions of religion and philosophy are in no way subject to, to criticism by the empirical sciences. That if we had a real order of learning, if we, in other words, did not have this inferiority complex, which has been imposed on us by philosophers of science, scientism people, uh, we would go about our work perfectly serene about many things, and then if there were questions to be answered in the empirical world, we would graciously consult the empirical scientists, but not as if they had it within their power to upset all our faith and, and our whole world view because of some result of an experiment or, or they're decoding some manuscript or something. And this inferiority complex, therefore, had this uh, style about it that we would listen for a long time. If I wanted to study theology or philosophy, I no longer thought which is the only tool, really, of philosophy. And theology is this thinking also, the only tool of theology is thinking about data of belief. No, no, what I would do is listen to the empirical scientists, the anthropologists, but much more the biologists and, and the geologists, and they would give me the truth about the, the appearance of forms and the reality of forms and so on, and they would tell us all about the mechanisms of bodies evolving, and they would have the appropriate Greek names, which also intimidates me because I never learned Greek, and I'm easily intimidated by skulls and Greek and, and a lot of things. And they would, they would do all this, and then at the very end, I would be allowed to say, yes, you're right, but God made it, God started it. That, that I would, would always put in the little footnote after they dominate the conversation, dominate the learning, with all their, their ingenious truths about how it all happened. They would, give, they would tell us what caveman looked like, what he had for breakfast, and this four million years ago. You know, sometimes I talk to people, I still believe in miracles, and I tactfully suggest that miracles are happening even in our own century and that at Lourdes, one he even sees documentary proof, medically uh, documentary proof of, of real cures, and people say, yes, but we need a healthy skepticism, which I appreciate. And in the very next breath, they tell us what caveman did two million years ago around a campfire as he dragged his woman in, and that's called science. I mean, this, this is the madness, this is the source of the inferiority complex in the church, that it's because, not the source, the effect, it's because we have such an inferiority complex that we allow this nonsense. And people say, well, I know evolution happened, I see bones. Well, I see bones in the butcher shop. That proves nothing. So getting back to this, we were allowed, therefore, to add nervously after every lecture by a scientist, but, but, but God started it all. And if he were gracious to us, he would, he would acquiesce. Yeah, all right. 
That's okay. You're allowed to say that. That's a contribution from the Department of Theology. And then we had to say, as Father noted, Pius XII said, we had to say, as they tell us all about uh, the different Greek names for uh, Homo erectus and Homo sapiens and all that, we had to insist that, all right, but nevertheless, the soul was directly created by God. And talking to a modern scientist or modern evolutionist, he might say yes, but he doesn't know what you mean and he really doesn't believe it anyhow. But if it keeps you happy, okay. But he knows where all the genes and the chromosomes came from and the DNA and everything else. And that is that was the real thing. Now, that was exactly my point. As I say, for 18 years I taught philosophy, including epistemology and once in a while metaphysics. And I fully believed in God, and, but, and I was terrified into believing that all this was scientific fact, and the only thing I could do was add my two pathetic footnotes. And uh, my chief concern was nevertheless to prove that God exists. As, as the popes, the recent popes have noted, the great pain, the great agony of our century is atheism. It didn't even take the popes to notice this. Dostoevsky already noticed this, that the real problem in this world is that the crisis is over whether a personal God exists. And that belief has been eroded within the church and, of course, without the church and within many other denominations, not just the Roman Catholic Church, that the real crisis is that people no longer believe or no longer are convinced or no longer take seriously the reality of a transcendent personal God. So I, as a philosopher, was very interested in justifying this with or without science. It's totally immune to the latest archaeology or to the latest footnote in philology or whatever, so that I was very preoccupied with the philosophy of God. And then I thought it was a very minor question, not really worthy of a philosopher's time, whether God took a long time or a short time to create the world. My main point was that necessary being existed. If the evolutionists are right, he dawdled for a couple of million years. He, he allowed things just to go at random. Uh, he, he allowed blind mechanisms through chance to decide which form uh, showed up, but who knows the ways of God. But if the evolutionists are wrong, and if the fundamentalists are in any sense right, well then the creation of God was a kind of act, a conscious act. And in terms of human time, it took place in a very short time. I don't know whether it need be seven literal days, but I don't see anything stupid about that either. I don't think there's anything stupid about taking Genesis, literally. Now, I then started to read a Catholic priest in America whom you probably have not heard of. He was a Columban father, Father Patrick O'Connell. And this poor man was one of those who are not panicked by majority votes. He simply tried to understand the whole scientific question. He was not so much a theologian as a as a student of science, and he didn't even have enough funds to put out a decent book. I mean, his book was almost glued together because there's no market 
for a lonely thinker. All the evolutionary books are beautifully bound, but, but not Father O'Connell's book. Uh, uh, Patrick O'Connell, he, he, the last 10 years of his life, he lived in Denver, Colorado. And I almost met him, but uh, he had a phone call. He, he and I were supposed to meet in Denver, and then he took sick, and I never saw him again. He, he didn't die. And he was the first, that was the first voice I heard in my entire education, all of that in Catholic schools, by the way, which suggested that scientifically there might be something wrong with the alleged proofs for evolution based on paleontology, mostly. And I, I, I began to say, my goodness, this, this is really interesting. It didn't shake me, but it, it loosened my inferiority complex. I didn't feel so much like a, a footnote writer when it came to the question of matter and the forms of matter and so on. And then I read four or five Protestant books. And here's where I love ecumenism, by the way. Real ecumenism is not that we, uh, that we join them, as most people seem to think it is, that everybody's right. That's ecumenism. That's nonsense. But real ecumenism, as Pope Paul VI said, is to join our brethren on whatever level we agree on. And we agree with Protestants on many, many levels. We don't agree on, say, the, the last three, the authority of the church and the sacrament and so on. But the real Protestants agree with us, say, 90% of the time. And the real Anglicans, maybe 95% of the time. So here you have beautiful Protestants in America, uh, all of them PhDs in science. They're not very philosophical. I don't even think they're gifted in philosophy. But they took it at a lower level. They, are not, they did not want to uh, uh, discuss this ultimate question of what you mean by sufficient reason of being, which is a philosophical question. They did not want to ask this ultimate epistemological question of just how does one go about proving origins. They simply took the matter one step lower, and they simply said, let's assume this is a a set of rival scientific hypotheses. On the one hand, we have the evolutionary hypothesis which, which uh, uh, projects or which claims that things took millions of years and, and that the new forms are the result of natural selection of chance mutations and so on. And that is a respectable scientific hypothesis. And let's take as a scientific hypothesis the, the creationist hypothesis that it, there was no long time there need not have been any long time, that the forms, the, 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 what they call the biblical classes, in other words, you don't have to go through every breed of dog, but you simply take the, the generic family or called dog or cat or whatever, that these biblical species were directly created and were not due to, to uh, natural selection of, of mutations and so on. And in terms of those two hypotheses, they investigated or evaluated the known scientific evidence, uh, whether from paleontology or whatever, and they seem to suggest, and this I am more and more convinced of, that creationism is at least as viable as evolutionism in fitting the facts. And they seem to say it's much more so. Now that dispute can go on forever. And I ultimately don't think it's crucial. 
but it was psychologically crucial in my case. In other words, you see, I was, I had an inferiority complex as do most of my confreres in the Roman Catholic Church. Here am I, a mere philosopher, and we philosophers are worthless. All we do is talk. We don't have experiments. We don't have federal money. We don't have anything. And we're trying to tell you something about matter and, and, and uh, articulated forms and so on. And, along, and our enemy or our rival or our competitor is a scientist. Microbiology and all this stuff. And he tells us, on faith, of course, we accept it, that it is scientifically proved that transformism has occurred and evolution is a fact, well then I am so gripped by my inferiority complex I lose all, all courage and I simply stay in the shadow lest anyone notice I'm saying anything about man or whatever. But now that the Protestants come along and I admit they're in a minority, I admit that they might not always be able to answer an evolutionist uh, dispute We've had some good debates in America, by the way. My dream is to get that debate at Fordham. That will change Fordham. Scientific debate with the Protestants on one side and the Jesuits on the other. The Protestants being the Christians in this case. And, and uh, I say, if we have had that scientific debate, you would not have this flippancy on scientists' part from the biology department with their condescension uh, when it comes to the human person, the human soul, God, or whatever, because the Protestants are well able to account for the known data at least as intelligently as are the evolutionists, and I dare say much more so. Now, the message I got from, from these few people is that, first of all, there's no genuine scientific uh, evidence that evolution is a valid theory. At least, say, no conclusively genuine. There are certain things which might suggest uh, 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 the uh, verification of the evolutionary hypothesis. But it's by no means, as Father said, a closed case. Quite the opposite. Also, that the creation model fits the facts at least as better, at least as good and in fact better. Also that certain world-shaking evidence for evolution was a fake or a hoax. And you in England have the honor of hosting K.R. de Chardin's Piltdown Man. And uh, we in America were in, in awe of the Piltdown Man and the Peking Man and, and all these other Greek names which I can never pronounce. Now we have the Leaky Man. I suppose, in plain English, and everybody still is in awe. And it doesn't bother them that the doctor's leaky. I can't even get their family straight, but there are three of them. Uh, they'll say that they have 20 years of research, and then they'll come up and write a paper and say, well, I guess we were wrong by two million years. <laughs> I guess our discovery wipes out two million years. Well, friend, is this serious science? You just read the paper now, and after, for the last hundred years, we've been changing our religion, our biblical exegesis, because of all your wonderful stuff, and now you just tell us, well, we have to rechange everything? What sort of serious... You know, if this were on any other topic, but a topic involving this ultimate question of God, these people would be hooted right out of a society. If you dare give such tentative science fiction statements as we are getting, 
from the scientific community about some religiously neutral topic, you'd be hooted right out. If you get some stupid statement, say, about the origin of cancer, equivalent to the science fiction that we've been getting and have been getting right from Darwin onward, whether in England or Germany or America or whatever, you'd be hooted out. No one would take you seriously. But in the moment it deals with this ultimate metaphysical religious question of origins, anything is preferable to God. As C.S. Lewis said in his book on miracles, too, on, on an allied question, that uh, if you have the best historically authenticated miracle, people would sooner believe the wildest hypothesis rather than accept the historicity of that miracle. They would sooner believe mass delusion. They would sooner believe that people knowing something to be a lie would nevertheless uh, allow themselves to be martyred or whatever. They would sooner believe all that than that the thing happened. Why? Because if it did happen, it's a religious truth. And they're allergic to religion. They have their radar on. And if anything seems to suggest the supernatural, every bell rings and lights flash and they reject as unscientific what's going on. Now, I want to tonight note this distraction aspect. The whole point is this. I, I insist that I was right in the first place that the, the real question is God or no God. That's the real question. But nevertheless, because of accidental secondary reasons, people have dismissed the real question and they think the real question is evolution or no evolution, and then they later on might allow you a footnote about God. And this distraction, I claim, is perhaps the most serious error of the last hundred years. I think it's the most serious error in modernism in the Catholic Church since Vatican Council II. I think that when you have theologians and biblical exegetes walk away from the church in sadness, and I mean walk away from the true church in sadness, they are in good faith. These I'm thinking of. Some of them are not, but these I'm thinking of, uh, they simply think that, and they rightly think, that to accept the faith is so contrary to this whole evolutionary truth that they think they have to choose between scientific truth which is a lonely truth, which will condemn them ultimately to a world of absurdity or to biblical fancy. And they walk away from the church sadly. So I think that this distraction aspect, even though it doesn't uh, detail any scientific criticism, is crucial to understanding the phenomena of the last 20 years or so and even prior to that.